Okay, we're going to go ahead and uh, begin with our Bible study today. And we are in the Catechism. I believe we're on Lord's Day number 5, which is page 27. Page 27. So, Lord's Day 5, page 27, and it'll be questions 12, 13, 14, and 15 today. And this starts a new section in the Catechism, uh, teaching about uh, the grace that leads to salvation. They've already dealt with the issue of sin and why it is that all men are under the condemnation of sin. And now it's going to talk about uh, the grace of God and how it is that God overcomes the sin of man and what is necessary in order to produce that. So let's pray and then we'll begin our Bible study this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the time to meet together today, Lord, to open up your word. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to even have a, a greater understanding, Lord, of these truths, things that we, Lord, we know uh, that we're convinced of. But Lord, we know that there's always uh, the need for us to come to a, a greater and a deeper, a fuller understanding of the gospel of, of Christ, that it might uh, have more bearing upon our life. And so we ask that you might teach us uh, more fully today, Lord, to see and to understand how our only hope for salvation rests solely upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that you have provided, the only a mediator that exists between God and man that can actually reconcile sinful man to a holy God. So Lord, teach us today from your word and Lord, grow us in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. So Lord's Day 5 and we're on question 12. Question 12, which says, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. How can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? And then the answer, God demands that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. Here, again, having established the sinfulness of man and the judgment of God, the just condemnation of God upon sinful man due to our own sin. And we know of God's righteous judgment. And because of His righteous judgment, we deserve both temporal and eternal punishment. We deserve to die in this present life, temporal death, but then also there is the second death, which is the lake of fire. And these are the just penalties that God has brought about because of the sin of man. And these penalties must be dealt with, right? They must be satisfied. God cannot simply sweep sin under the rug, ignore it, act like it didn't happen without there being some satisfaction made to the justice of God. And that's the question that they're seeking to answer. How can we, who deserve these punishments, how can we escape these punishments and be received again into God's favor? Because of sin, we do not have the favor and blessing of God, but rather the wrath of God abides upon us. So what is the means or what is the way that a sinner can be received back into God's favor that does not violate the justice of God, the righteousness of God, so there has to be the satisfaction of this penalty, both the temporal and eternal punishments that are due to sinners. And that's why they answer that God demands that His justice be satisfied. So at the very beginning, they're very clear in establishing that there is a demand for the satisfaction of the justice of God. So already taken off of the table is any idea or concept 
of God overlooking our sin, of God minimizing our sin, sweeping our sin under the rug, just ignoring it and saying, you know, I know that you've done this and this is what you deserve, but I'm just going to overlook it and nothing's going to happen to you. Right? That will never happen because God demands His justice be satisfied and God desires to satisfy His justice against sin. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. Right? There must be the full payment of sin. The just satisfaction of the demands of God, the wrath of God must be fulfilled against sin and that payment will be made either by ourselves or by another. Here they introduce the concept that there is a way of escape for sinners to avoid, to escape the punishment of God against sin. Either it has to be satisfied in ourselves or there must be another who rises up and who satisfies the just demands of the law against us in himself, right? In himself. And this will ultimately lead to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the only means appointed by God for a sinner to escape the wrath of God, but not contrary to his justice because God's justice is still executed, but instead of it happening to the sinner, it happens to the son, to his own son, who is a sacrifice for our sins. Exodus 20, 4 to 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. There it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There, the Lord calls himself a jealous God who visits iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. God will visit the iniquity on the sinner. There is this visiting, which is the justice of God being executed upon the man due to sin. Exodus 23. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 7. 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Those who are guilty will not be acquitted They will not be exonerated. They will not be declared righteous by God in the state of their sin. Those who are guilty will not be acquitted. There must be this punishment due to sin. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Romans 2, verse 1 says, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you, who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of the stubbornness of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, 
seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. There, God is an impartial judge who gives to each man according to what he has done. And for sinners, that is uh, not comforting news, but rather it terrifies us because... He promises that to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress on every soul of men who does evil, whether they're Jew or Greek. And according to Romans chapters 1 to 3, who does that apply to? Everyone, right? All are unrighteous. So what every man receives according to the justice of God is tribulation and distress. It is wrath and indignation eternally upon every soul of man. And if there is no payment for the soul of that man, if there is not another who rises up to take his place, then that man must bear the weight of his own sin. And he will receive the just punishment of God because of the many evils that he has committed. And that's why they say, there must be full payment either by ourselves, but then the other solution is by another, by another person. And that would be Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. Isaiah 53, 11. And really the whole of Isaiah 53 is addressing this topic. But Isaiah 53, 11 says, Out of the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. There, God the Father will be satisfied because of the anguish of his soul. The soul being the soul of the servant. And there, God's wrath is satisfied in His servant, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will justify the many because He bears their iniquity. So, is the justice of God violated in the person of Christ? No, it is perfectly fulfilled because Jesus Himself bore the penalty that we deserved. He took it in our place and there died on the cross, experiencing the judgment of God, both temporally and the eternal punishment of God that was owed to sin. Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, verses 3 to 4. says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law could not justify men, because the law was weakened because of the flesh of men. Though the law promises and gives and shows the way of life and salvation to men, how a man can be right in the sight of God, but the law is not able to convey or to confer that blessing, that righteousness onto man, because it's precepts are weakened by the flesh. Because of the flesh, man is not able to keep the law so as to obtain 
the blessing and the reward of eternal life. So then what is the only way that this blessing can be obtained? That of eternal life. God had to send His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He had to come and die in our place so that the righteous requirements could be fulfilled in us. Question 13. Can we ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. No man, through good works, through his own efforts, is able to make this payment to God, to the justice of God, because of sin. And this is the great danger, that uh, a danger and a delusion that persists upon many, many people. Many believe that so long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, that God will receive them into, their fa- into His favor. And what is the problem with that line of thinking? They don't do anything good, right? That's the problem. They don't do anything good. They may do things that are good in a civil sense, right? Or they may do something to their fellow man, such as uh, giving some food to someone who is poor. Even an unbeliever can do that, and that's better than kicking him. But can that justify them in the sight of God? Can they present that deed to God as the basis for their salvation and why God should admit them into eternal life? And the answer is no. And even in that good deed, there is still sin. Because if that good deed is not proceeding from faith in Christ, then it's really not good. And if it does not have as its goal the glory of God, then it is not a good deed. It's still sinful because it does not have the proper goal or aim. So whatever man does to seek to overcome his own sin, it just increases his debt and makes him more condemned and he heaps more and more sin upon himself. And this is what happens uh, daily as we increase our debt. Psalm 130. Psalm 130. 130 in verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God should count our iniquities against us and relate to every man on the basis of his own works, on the basis of his own righteousness, he says no one could stand. No one could stand righteous and innocent in the sight of God if God regarded us according to our own sin. And this is because we enter into the world guilty and then we daily increase that guilt because every day we commit more and more sins. New sins every day so that they reach up to the very heavens. Also in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In there, verse uh, 12. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here, when Jesus is teaching them how to pray, it's the Lord's Prayer. And in verse 11, he says, give us our daily bread. Our daily bread, because every day we need bread. We need food for the body to sustain us on a daily basis. Well, how often do we have to ask God to forgive us our debts? Is that a monthly sin that we pray? No, it's a daily sin. 
Because just as we need our daily bread for the body, we also need our daily bread for the soul. And we need our sins forgiven because we have our daily sins against God. And so we are to pray continually, daily, Lord, forgive us of our debts. Debts to what? Debts to the justice of God. The justice of God that requires vindication because of our sins, because of the many sins that we commit against Him. Romans chapter 2, Romans 2, we read this already, but we'll hit verses 4 and 5 again. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the richness of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Right When a person has a stubborn, unrepentant heart, then every day that heart is stubborn. Every day that heart is unrepentant. So every day, what do they do? They store up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. They already have the wrath of God against them, but now they are storing up more wrath against themselves because they're committing new sins every day that are coming out of their stubborn and unrepentant heart. So whatever attempts man makes for his own salvation or justification, he may think that he is moving forward, but actually he's going backwards, right? Every day he actually digs himself a deeper hole and he is more condemned and has more wrath of God upon him because of his sin. And we know from James chapter 2, verse 10, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. Right? One transgression is enough to condemn a man to hell for all eternity. Right? One transgression is enough for the sentence of both temporal and eternal death to rest and abide upon a man. But do we only have one transgression of the law? No, we have countless, countless transgressions of the law, each of them deserving eternal and temporal punishment. Question 14. Can any mere creature pay for us? And the answer, no. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Here, can a creature, this being a created being, a created being, can a created being pay this debt of sin that we owe? And the answer is no. No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. A living thing, a living animal, right? A creature like a sheep, an ox, right? A bull, a goat. Can these bear the weight of our sin? Can God's punishment against our sin be executed on an animal so that that punishment is satisfied and therefore the sinner can be forgiven and all of his sins can be wiped away? And the answer is no. No, this is, it is an injustice for God to punish a sheep for the sin of men, as if that sheep could bear the sins of that man. Furthermore, it says no creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. How can a creature that dies bear the eternal weight of sin? It's impossible. How can an animal being sacrificed at the temple, how can that animal 
be punished eternally for the sin of a man when that animal dies, and then when it dies, what happens to it? Its body is taken out and it decays, but the animal does not have an immortal soul that can be punished in hell for all eternity. But the punishment that men deserve is not only temporal death, it's not only a physical death, but it is also a second death, a spiritual death for all eternity. And do animals have souls? No. Men have souls, but animals do not. Can an angel die in the place of men? Well, an angel is a spiritual being, but an angel does not have a body. So how can that angel take the sin and the wrath of God against man when man consists of both body and soul? And in terms of our sin, we sin with both body and soul. And so in terms of punishment, both body and soul must be punished. Angels are not sufficient because angels have a spiritual component, but not the physical. Animals are not sufficient because animals have the physical component, but they do not have the spiritual. So no created being is able to take the place of men. And this was obvious in the worship of the Old Testament, that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away their sins. And that was obvious because what did they have to repeatedly offer over and over and over again? More sacrifices. The animals over and over again. These were not taking away their sin, but was a reminder to them to look to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, as the only solution and source of salvation. That their sin abided and remained on them, and that these animals were symbols or types, but they themselves could not satisfy the just demands of God against the sins of men. This is why they offered them over and over again. Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 4 and then verse 20. Verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. There, the soul who sins will die. Not just the body that sins, but the soul, right? The true person, who we are. This person will die who sins against me. Verse 20, the the person who sins will die. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity, nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So there, the soul that sins will die. The Son will not be put to death for the Father's sin. In terms of this eternal uh, punishment, it is there we stand individually before God on the basis of our own sin. He's not saying that there are not consequences that come upon the sons because of the sins of the father. Certainly that is true. But in terms of our standing before God, we each stand as individuals. And the sin of the father will not be punished on the son so that the father escapes punishment. That cannot happen because the father has his own sins that must be punished and the son has his own sins that must be punished. The soul who sins shall surely die. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Hebrews 2, 14. 
It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not help angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. There, the children that he comes to help, he says that they are subject to slavery all of their lives. And this subject is through fear of death. They're they're enslaved and they're held uh, by the power of death through the devil, and they are subject to this slavery, this fear of death, all of their lives because of their sin. And the devil is the instigator of sin in the world in that he was the original tempter that tempted Adam and Eve. And then he is the one that continues through temptation to produce sin in men and that results in death. So the devil and sin and death, these three are in league together And these three have a slavery or a power over sinful men. And no man is able to free himself from this power or from this enslavement by his own works or his own good deeds of righteousness. So God will not punish another creature, right? Another created being for the sin which man has committed. And then the next part is that no creature can sustain this burden, right? An animal cannot sustain the wrath of God for all eternity against his sin, right? And this is why even sinners, their punishment is eternal punishment, eternity in the lake of fire, because their sin is against an eternal God. Therefore, the punishment must be according to the sin. Because we sin against an eternal God, Therefore, it deserves an eternal punishment. And because people in themselves are finite beings, they are never able to completely quench or satisfy the wrath of God against them, which is why they must punish, be punished for all eternity, for all eternity. And this would be true of any created being, any created being, whether an angel, whether an animal, no one is able to bear the burden of the wrath of God against sin so as to extinguish or to quench, satisfy the wrath of God so that there is no longer any punishment that is owed to the man and they cannot deliver themselves. We've already read Psalm 130 verse 3, which says if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? And that is no one. And then Nahum chapter 1, Nahum chapter 1 verse 6 says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. So no one can stand before the indignation of God. No one can endure his burning anger. When God's anger comes against a man, it will consume him, right? Like fire consumes stubble, so the wrath of God consumes sinful men. And there's nothing that a man can do to stop it, to deliver himself, to oppose God, it is impossible for this to be the case. And we know from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. 
the blood of a bull, the blood of a goat, is not able to take away or to satisfy the wrath of God so that the sin of that man no longer remains on him. Then verse, question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? And the answer, one who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. Right? The mediator, the deliverer, the only one who can deliver man from his sin, he must be a man. Because he, we are men, and this is who needs to be delivered, then he must be made like us in all things. Jesus had to be a true man. Not a different man, not a different kind of being, not a different kind of creature. If he were a different creature, then he could not die in the place of man. He had to be made like us in all things, right? Since the children have flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. He had to take on flesh and blood. We have a human body, He had a human body. We have a human soul. He had a human soul. Everything that is true of us had to be true of Christ in terms of our nature and in terms of our being in the way that we were created. Now, what is the only exception in terms of the person of Christ and His relationship to us? He did not have any sin. But when God created Adam and Eve, He didn't create them with sin. So sin is not essential to our human being, to our human nature. Because Adam and Eve were true people, true men, right, true humans in the garden before they committed sin against God. Sin is accidental, or not that it's accidental in terms of uh, the purposes of God or the will of God, but it's not essential to our being to make us human beings. Therefore, Jesus is a true man, just like all of us, except he is without sin. He is a righteous man. And because he's a righteous man who has no sin, then there is no justice of God, no wrath of God that is against him. God is pleased with him. He has no penalty of of death against him. He does not need to die both physically and eternally because of his own sins. Therefore, since he is a man, he can take the place of men. And because he is a righteous man and he has no sin of his own, he he can take and be a substitute for us. However, not only must he be a man, he must also be more powerful than all creatures. Because the wrath of God against sinful man is an eternal wrath. It is an infinite wrath. So how will he be able to bear this? How will he be able to sustain the wrath of God? If Jesus was only a man, then it would have sunk him down into the depths of hell and he would have to suffer eternally for the sins of others. But Jesus did not suffer eternally. He rose from the dead, and he rose victoriously. And how was it that the eternal wrath of God, eternal punishment, was satisfied in him? How was he able to bear all of that wrath that the justice of God demanded? And this is because he is at the same time true God. And his humanity was being upheld by his divinity so that he was able to drink the full cup of the wrath of God and drink it to its dregs, completely quench it so that all of the justice and the demands of God against us were completely satisfied in the person of Christ. This is why he had to be both truly man and truly God, fully God and fully man 
in the one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if He's not truly man, then He cannot die in the place of men, and we're all still dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're all going to go to hell. And if He's not truly God, He cannot bear the burden of sin for us, and we're all still dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're all going to go to hell. The only way we can be saved is by such a mediator as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why the Bible teaches that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus. He is the only one suited to fulfill this role. And any other person that we might look to to deliver us cannot do so. Cannot do so. And also, does Jesus need any help in fulfilling this role of mediator? Does He need assistance from Mother Mary? Does He need help from the saints in order to fulfill and complete our salvation? Does He need help from the Pope in order to do these things? Of course not. This is why it's such blasphemy when these traditions seek to add the good works or the deeds of the saints, the prayers of Mother Mary, to the mediation of Christ. Because they're saying that Christ Himself by Himself is not able to save His people. He needs assistance and help from His mother, from the apostles, from the saints, from the church. He doesn't need help from anyone because He is able to do it, and He and He alone. And anyone who says He can't do it, that's not good. Right? We shouldn't be saying those kinds of things. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. First Corinthians 15, verse 21. It says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Here, this is showing that Jesus was a true man. Sin came into the world because of a man, this being Adam. And death came into the world through Adam's sin. So also then, the resurrection of the dead, which leads to eternal life, must come by a man. And here it did come by a man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2, 17. We've read, but we'll read it again. 2, 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There, in verse 14, it's where it says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same. So he had to be made like them in all things. He had to be a true man. He could not be a different kind of man, but a man as we are, except without sin. That's why they say a righteous man, a righteous man. That's not true of us. None of us are righteous. We're all unrighteous. There's only one man who ever walked the face of the earth who was righteous in and of himself. Now, we become righteous because of his righteousness, but not on our own, not on the basis of our own works and our own obedience to the law. Jesus was righteous in terms of his obedience to the law of God, in that he never sinned against God, not one time. Not one time. And if he did, he cannot save us from our sins because he would have his own sins to die for. Isaiah 53 so we have to contend then for the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. Right? In any tradition, false religion, whatever, that denies this, that Jesus is both God and man and that He was a righteous man, then it's not sufficient. Right? It is blasphemy 
to say that because there are many traditions, such as the Muslims, they, they hold Jesus in high regard. They say that he's the second greatest prophet after Muhammad, which that's, that's actually not a compliment. That's actually an insult if you know anything about Muhammad and the way that man lived. Uh, that's what they say about him. They hold him in a high regard, and he has a high place in, the, in terms of their thinking. The Buddhists and Hindus uh, say that Jesus was a great uh, teacher, a guru uh, in this way, so they have a high regard for him. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a high regard for Jesus in a sense. But does it rise to this level? No. So it's insufficient and it is actually blasphemous to not declare and confess these things to be true of Christ. We must believe what the Bible says. Isaiah 53, 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There, he did no violence, no deceit in his mouth. Right, And the mouth is the principal member of our body that proves and manifests outwardly in the world of the sinfulness of our heart. But in Christ's mouth, there was no deceit. It was only truth and righteousness. And that showed that in his heart was only what is true and what is righteous. That he was indeed a righteous man. And though he died, it was because he died for our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin, and he was made sin on our behalf. He took our sin upon himself, and then he died for our sins. Hebrews 7, verse 26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Here, our high priest, Jesus Christ, is innocent, holy, undefiled, separated from sinners. From sinners. Right? Not separated from men. Right? In terms of his salvation, he draws near to us. Right? He comes and becomes like us in all things. But in terms of sin, he is separated from us. He's not like us at all. He was sanctified from the womb. He was separated from sinners. He was holy, righteous, innocent. He was undefiled. Okay, but then the last part, having established that the mediator that we must seek must be a true and righteous man, we also see that he must be more than a man. He must be more powerful than all creatures one who is at the same time true God, who is both God and man in the one person. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah 7. 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God is with us. God is with us. So the virgin will bear a son. So that she's bearing a son, this son is a man, right? It's a child. 
but this son will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The man is also truly God in the one person. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So here, this child, this son that is given to us, the one that the government will rest on his shoulder. But then he's called Mighty God and Eternal Father. How can this man, the son that is born, if he's not fully God, he cannot be called these things, right? This would be blasphemy. It would be a sin to reference and to refer to this man as Mighty God and Eternal Father. Eternal Father. Eternality is only true of God. And yet here it is ascribed to this child, to this son who is born. And this is, again, a messianic passage referring to the Christ or the Messiah who would come into the world and predicting, showing that he would be have both a human nature and the divine nature in the one person. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So there, the humanity is that he is a righteous branch from David. So in terms of his human nature, he is descended from David, but also he is the Son of God. He's called the Lord our righteousness. He is the Lord, the Lord God, and He is our righteousness. He is the source or basis for which we become righteous in the sight of God. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there, in the beginning, right, for all eternity, the Word was there with God, and the Word is God. And then this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And who is He talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God. This is true of His divinity. And then He was incarnated and dwelt among us as a man, but God in human flesh. And then Romans 8, 3-4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God said, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had human flesh. He had flesh and blood like we do, but He was the Son of God. He had the divine nature of the Father as well. And this is the only mediator who can deliver us from our sins, who can reconcile us to God. He must represent both God and man, right? And as a representative of God, he must have the same divine nature as the Father. And as a representative of man, he must have the same human nature as the men he represents. 
And only Jesus Christ is this true of. He is the only one who can serve in this role. The only way that we can be reconciled to God is through the mediation of Jesus Christ. This is what we've been dealing with in the book of Hebrews. Right? Hebrews is dealing extensively with the mediation of Christ, him as high priest over the household of faith, and how it is that he fulfills these roles, right? How it is that he does this and is the only one suited and equipped to bring about the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of the people to God. So should we look for any other mediator? Is there any other source of salvation out there where we can have our sins forgiven? There is only one. There is only one, and it is only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we should cling to Him, hold fast to Christ, put all of our hope and confidence in Him, and we will not be disappointed, right? Because God has provided Him as this source of reconciliation.